Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us online for worship here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. Uh, and if you are tuning in for the first time, second time, third time, for whatever reason, you just came across the, the live stream, somebody sent it to you and said you should tune in, we are especially glad that you joined us and we are glad that you felt comfortable having us in your home today and you are an honorary member of the Vista family this morning. Uh, before we jump in, quick reminder of an update we gave last week, just kind of for our plan going forward when it comes to reopening. Uh, long story short, and I believe John, our executive pastor, will reiterate and amplify some of this at the end of the service. Uh, our plan, if there's no spike in cases and the gradual reopening goes well, would be that in some point in June, at some point in June, we will be able to gather again here at the building, uh, but we will do so in much smaller numbers spread across a number of different services so that we are able to responsibly practice all of the social distancing guidelines. And again, John will reiterate some of that uh, and we'll kind of further explain some of those plans in the upcoming weeks. What I really wanted to remind you of though uh, is that the church has a really unique opportunity right now. Um, everywhere I like look or turn or listen uh, right now, there are people who are yelling at each other and accusing each other and playing the blame game. You're too reckless. You're too conservative. You're too cautious. You're too this. You're too that. And it's just really quite exhausting. And think about the difference it would make if we, the church, right, Jesus' people, we used all of that energy instead of judging and criticizing and blaming each other. We channeled that energy toward helping and serving and understanding each other. It's a really unique opportunity we have to show the world a different way. So let's do that, church family. Let's hold each other accountable. You know, check each other's Facebook feeds. It's dangerous out there and make sure that everybody is practicing understanding, patience, and kindness. All right? Now today, today we are in the fourth week of our series called Beautiful, Terrible World. A series where we're journeying through the story of a man named Job uh, a story that I think at least is the most interesting story in all of scripture. And if you're joining us for the first time, or perhaps if you're just like me and uh, the pandemic has wreaked such havoc on your memory that you currently have the attention span of a goldfish. You know, I haven't known what day of the week it is for like six weeks. If that's you, it's fine. We'll give you a quick little recap of the story so far. So Job, our main character, he is blameless. He's a good and just and righteous man whose life is ruined for apparently no good reason. And after initially seeming to accept all of this with apparently perfect piety, Job finally rebels. And he gets angry and he demands an explanation. And this sets in motion a series of arguments between Job and his friends, where his friends tried to explain to him that this happened to Job because he deserved it, right? Because God gives people what they deserve in this life. And so if this is what Job got, as much as it sucks, this is what Job deserved. But Job, Job's not buying it. He's a stubborn man. We learned that last week. He's not buying it. And we know better, right? We know that Job did not deserve this. And the story of Job was placed in scripture to remind us that God's ways in the world cannot be reduced to some simple, moral, mathematical equation where God gives good people good things and God gives bad people bad things. Nope, says the story of Job. It's not the way the world works. Things are much more complicated than that. Because the world's a wild place ruled by a God who is good, but who is neither particularly predictable nor safe, at least not in the ways we have come to think of those terms. So in C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right, first book in his Narnia series, 
there's this great scene where the children, who are the main characters, have been magically transported to this mythical land of Narnia, and they discover that Aslan, the king of Narnia, is actually a lion. Okay, so listen to this. Mr. Beaver said, well, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan said, well, I thought he was a man. Well, is he quite safe? Because I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so the stage is set. Job has been demanding for an explanation from God. Job's friends have been claiming to speak for God, and now God will finally show up and speak for God's self. You got your Bibles. We're in Job 38, verses 1 through 18, starting out, and it will be on the screen as well, right here. Job 38, verses 1 through 18. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Now gird up your loins like a man, Job. I'll ask you and you instruct me. Now where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you? You obviously know. Or who stretched the line out on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth and went out from the womb when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and I said to the sea, thus farther shall you come but no further and here shall your proud waves stop. Job, have you ever in your life commanded the morning or caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It's changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Job, have you ever entered into the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you seen the gates of death? Or have have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you know all of this or any of this. So Job 38, 1 through 18. So Job's life has been ruined and he's been demanding an explanation. And then all of a sudden, the lightning flashes and the thunder rumbles in and Job finally gets his confrontation with God. Now God's response to Job comes in two different parts. Here in verses 38 through 39, God begins by taking Job on a journey through space and time on a tour of the universe. God says, Job, uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Have you ever walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you ever escorted the constellations in their choreographed dance across the night sky? Then after this staggering exploration of the colossal dimensions of space and time, our universal tour then hones in on the animal kingdom, right? This is the part we left out. Uh, God takes Job around. He says, hey, why don't you check out the hawks and the mountain lions and the lions and the wild stallions and the mountain goats, all these different animals. And if you're wondering, 
what in the world any of this stuff has to do with Job and his suffering, uh, then the answer would appear to be, well, everything and nothing. Right? I mean, I mean what, what do stars have to do with suffering? What do the recesses of the deep have to do with grief? Well, nothing. And so in response to Job's demand for an explanation for his suffering, God takes Job on a tour of all the things in the universe that don't have anything to do with Job and his suffering. And it would appear God does this in order to try and help Job understand that Job is neither everything nor nothing. And I'll say that again. God's trying to help Job understand that he's neither everything nor is he nothing. Now let's, let's unpack this idea a little bit. So for most of Earth's history, our planet has been filled with big, wild animals. You know, like dinosaurs and mammoths and saber-toothed tigers, or more recently, bison and bears and tigers. I got two little boys, and 50% of our conversations every day are them asking me who would win in a fight between like a, a grizzly bear and a mountain lion. My little boys love these things, but you may have noticed that uh, in recent history, our world has become a, uh, a much tamer place <clears throat> than it used to be. I mean, we, we, uh, we see a roadrunner in our backyard <gasps> and we act as if we've, we've had an encounter with a wild animal. You know, we post a Facebook video of our, our daring encounter staring at a deer through our kitchen window. Oh my goodness, it was a close one. It was a close one. Here's the video proof. Meanwhile, our ancient ancestors, you know, they woke up, looked out in their backyard and they saw, they saw their neighbor being eaten by a wild tiger and they just yawned and went back to bed. And I was like, ah, oh, what's going on out there? Oh, looks like Richard's getting eaten by a tiger. That sucks for him. Guess we can sleep in though because the tiger's not gonna be hungry today. All that to say, for millions of years or, or thousands of years, if you think the earth is young, that's fine. We won't, we won't pick that fight today. However long the earth has been around, it has been filled with big, wild animals. But at this point in history, the earth is really only filled with humans and our domesticated animals, okay? Because at this point in history, and this is mind-blowing, okay, but I promise it's true. At this point in history, 90% of the large animals on our planet, meaning animals that weigh more than five pounds, right? Animals bigger than this. 90% of the animals on our planet that weigh more than five pounds are either humans or our pets. That's all that left. We've literally killed all the rest of them. For example, there are only 200,000 wolves left in the wild, but there are over 400 million domesticated dogs. There are only 40,000 lions left in the wild, 40,000 lions, but there are over 600 million house cats, house cats. And I'm not gonna get on the cats. You know how I feel about them, but I've been harassed by cat people for months at this point. And there are many sad lessons to be learned from uh, the decline of the lion and the rise of the house cat. And if uh, you're feeling a bit lost right now because you're like, Austin, what, why, why are you talking about all these animals, man? What is this, like a PETA commercial, right? If you're starting to get uncomfortable, I would remind you that it was God who decided Job needed a tour of the animal kingdom in order to better understand creation and his place in it. And so if you tune me out for talking about the animals, then, well, you're tuning the big guy out, Okay. So anyways, back to our sad lesson from the animal kingdom. When we take a step back and we look at our rather ruthless treatment 
of the animal kingdom. The most damning lesson has got to be the almost inconceivable arrogance it displays. Right? I mean, we, we clearly think that we have a divine right to do basically whatever we want with God's world. Because anything that gets in our way, right? You know, any animal that's inconvenient, any animal we want out of the way, they either get uh, killed, stuffed in a zoo, or turned into a house cat. If you're a big animal on our planet, those are your options, buddy. We're going to kill you. We're going to stuff you in a zoo. We're going to turn you into a house cat. And this arrogance toward creation is a symptom of something that we might call the modern human project. Right? And so what is the modern human project? Well, the modern human project is probably best understood as our attempt to create a world that exclusively serves our needs. Okay? The modern human project, our attempt, humanity's attempt, to create a world that exclusively serves human needs. It's a project that's been picking up steam for the last 500 or so years. And it's a project that marks a huge shift in the way we humans see the world. Now, Charles Taylor calls this the anthropomorphic shift. That's a good $10 word that you can use to impress somebody. Anthropomorphic just means human-centered, okay? The human-centered shift. And here's how he describes it, right? He says, a crucial feature of God's design is that it's directed to our good. But it had always been thought that God has further purposes as well in his creation, that it's not just about us, that these were largely inscrutable, but that they included our love and worship of him. This recognition places immediately upon us a demand that goes beyond human flourishing. Okay? Now, in other words, our forefathers and mothers in Christian faith believed that we were important but we weren't everything, okay? They believed that we were a central part of God's purposes for creation, but we were not God's only purpose within creation. But over the last 500 or so years, there has been this human-centered shift where we have gradually come to think that we are, in fact, everything. We have gradually come to believe that God's ultimate purpose for the universe is to make sure humans are happy, safe, and comfortable. On a gut level, you and me, we we all believe that the universe exists to serve our need. That's why all this is here, to serve us. Now let's contrast that very human-centered picture of the world with the picture God tries to paint for Job in chapters 38 and 39. Okay. So God takes Job on a journey through space and time. God takes Job on a tour of the animal kingdom. And God appears to be saying to Job and to us, look, I know this is going to be difficult to believe. But believe it or not, everything is actually not about you. Because while the divine project includes humans... Uh, The modern human project of creating a world centered exclusively around the safety, happiness, and comfort of humans is not the divine project. God says, look, that's that's not what I'm up to in the world. That's not what all this stuff is for. And, and, And I know that can be hard to hear, you know, and it can be difficult to accept. But instead of making us feel insignificant, 
It's meant to help us understand that we're not the only significant thing in the universe. I say that again. This is not meant to make us feel insignificant. It's meant to help us understand that we're not the only significant thing in the universe. And I don't know about you, but I think it's great news that I'm not the only significant thing in the universe. I mean, it's like, it's like if you've ever stood before a mountain, you know, and you're just there and there's a few miles of granite staring down at you. And you feel so impossibly small. You stand in front of a mountain but it never really even occurs to you to feel insignificant because that would mean you're standing in front of a mountain and you're thinking about yourself. And how sad is that? You're going to stand in front of a mountain, the ocean, the Grand Canyon. You're going to stand in front of something that big and that beautiful and you're going to sit there and think about yourself and how it makes you feel. No, no, rather the reverence and the awe that we feel when we stand in front of a mountain is because for one of the very few times in our lives, we are not thinking about ourselves. And there's so much more we could say here, but let's leave it at this. There has never been a point in human history when we more desperately needed the reminder that we are not everything. That God's purposes include us but God's purposes also include more than us in our safety, comfort, and happiness, okay? So we're not everything, and it's important to know that, but neither are we nothing, which brings us back to our text. We'll pick it back up in Job 40, and we'll read verses one through nine. Job 40, verses one through nine. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault fighter contend with the Almighty? Let him who is reproved God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Whoa, behold, I'm insignificant. What am I going to reply to you? So I lay my hand on my mouth once I have spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. But then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind again and said, Now, Job, gird up your loins like a man. I'm going to ask you again, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Job 41 through 9. So after his journey through space and time, it is quite understandable that our friend Job would be feeling a tiny bit insignificant right now. And so, you know, when God kind of finishes with his speech, you notice that Job, he just kind of, he just kind of waves the white flag. And he's like, okay, I get it, God. You're really big. I'm really little. I'm sorry I said anything. I'll just shut my mouth now and I won't say anything. I'll just put my hand over my mouth. We're done here. I'm going to walk away. And now notice what happens next because it's very easy to miss. And if we miss it, we miss everything. So Job tries to wave the white flag and surrender. Job says, I've had enough. But instead of just accepting his resignation, instead of just chalking it up as, you know, another divine victory, you know, God's so proud of himself that he won another argument with a human being. God must feel so very good about himself. No, instead of that, God continues to press the issue with Job because God doesn't want Job's resignation. No, God wants Job's trust. And so God says, Job, I know you want to walk away, but, but we're not done here. And we need to continue this conversation because I'm not trying to bully or reprimand you. No, that's not what this is about. No, I'm inviting you to understand what you don't understand. 
And so this whole time, Job has been demanding an explanation. And his friends have been offering these explanations. And then when God finally shows up and responds to Job, he does not offer him an explanation, but instead offers him an invitation into a much bigger world. God says, Job, I'm not going to explain this all to you, but I'm going to invite you into something that's much, much bigger. Now, Terrence Malick is uh, one of the world's most interesting and acclaimed directors. He's a native Texan, so, you know, you know he's of good stock, who I believe was raised in Waco, currently resides in Austin. And he's got a visual and storytelling style that is utterly unique. About 10 years ago, he produced a movie, released a movie called The Tree of Life. And it's essentially a modern retelling of the story of Job. And it was recently named Film of the Decade by the Associated Press. Okay, so the Associated Press, not exactly known as like being particularly sympathetic to uh, biblical narratives, named this movie that is a retelling of the story of Job, Film of the Decade. And it's really a film unlike anything you've ever seen before. Uh, It's actually set in Waco, Texas, back in the 50s, and it just observes the story, the life of a family. Uh, A husband, a wife, and then three very rowdy little boys. And very early on in the movie, uh, one of the little boys dies. Family's devastated. And in a particularly moving scene, the boy's mother is talking to her pastor, trying to process her grief. And in an attempt to comfort her, her pastor says, well, you just got to understand that he's in God's hands now. To which she responds, well, he was in God's hands the whole time, wasn't he? Because how comforting is it to know that our children are in God's hands when children die in God's hands every single day. And then the movie takes a twist that we just really don't see uh, coming. Just when we feel like we cannot move on until we get an explanation or some resolution, uh, this story of a lost little boy and his grieving family is put on pause. And without warning, we are thrown into what can only be described as a 20-minute-long visual storytelling of the birth of the universe. For 20 minutes, we just sit there and, and we watch. It's like as stars are born and as planets are formed and as the universe swarms to life, and there are no words. For 20 minutes, we just sit and we watch the birth of the universe unfold across these unimaginable stretches of space and time. And then it's over, just like that, it's over. And having witnessed the birth of the universe, we're then dropped back into the story of this grieving family in Waco. And this very disorienting experience of we're with a grieving family in Waco We watch the birth of the universe. We're back with the grieving family in Waco. Makes us feel like this family's suffering is so impossibly insignificant when considered against such an enormous background. Because as painful as it was for them, how significant can the death of a little boy be when viewed through a lens that's as wide as the universe? Because as much as our suffering may concern us, 
Is it really concerning to anything or anybody else out there in this infinite ocean of space and time that we're all swimming in? (laughs) And you've probably um, asked some similar questions or at least felt them. I know I have. I've, I've lost loved ones and I've fallen into depression and I felt crushed beneath the weight of being a human. And I've wanted to believe, like with everything in my heart, I have wanted to believe that God knows and sees and cares, but I just feel like I am so impossibly insignificant. As much as I want to believe it, I find it impossible to believe that God could know and see and care because I feel like I am nothing floating out here in this ocean of space and time. And the deep hope that constantly shimmers beneath the surface of the sad and strange story of Job is that while Job and his suffering would appear to be nothing when considered in relation to the expanse of space and time, Job and his suffering are not nothing to God. And so God does not offer Job an explanation In fact, God is the only person in the book who doesn't offer Job an explanation, which should perhaps tell us something. We talked about that last week. God does not offer Job an explanation, finally. But neither does God ignore Job and his suffering. And so what I think we see here in Job 38 through 41, you know, is God God taking his almighty arm, you know, and wrapping it gently around Job. Job's probably smarter than that, you know. Gently around Job and saying, Job, look, this is how small you really are. Come watch the star be born. Come walk in the recesses of the deep. Come watch me command the morning, Job. Job, this is how small you are, far smaller than you have ever imagined. And yet here I am, the creator and sustainer of all this, and I'm taking the time to talk to you. (laughs) In other words, when God thunders from the whirlwind, you know, in response to Job, God's not saying, look, little man, I'm really big and you're really little, so pipe down down there or else you're gonna get the lightning bolts, buddy. You better shut your mouth. No. Rather, God's saying, Job, come and see and understand that while you're not everything, Neither are you nothing to me. In fact, you're precious beyond comprehension because here I am, the maker of all this, and I'm taking the time to talk to you. And of course, this anticipates the incarnation, right? God becoming fully man in Jesus of Nazareth in order to redeem us and show us our destiny. And what's our destiny? I love the way Psalm 8 puts this. The writer says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, God, the sun and moon and stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And what's the son of man that you would care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the seas, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so 
as the humans who are, according to the psalmist, um, a little lower than God. Did you know that's what scripture says you are? A little lower than God. Next time somebody's disrespecting you, you know, you get in an argument with your, your boss. You need to tell your boss, hey, check yourself. You're talking to somebody who's a little lower than God right now, okay? That's what the psalmist says. What Psalm 8 says is what Genesis 1 says. Genesis 2 says, our God-designed destiny is to rule over creation on God's behalf. And yet, before we get too proud of ourselves, you know, and, and too big for our britches here, we need to remember that Jesus taught us that to rule is to serve. In other words, creation does not exist to serve us. No, rather we exist to serve creation. And it's our great honor and privilege that God allows us to be his head servants, that God allows us to host the party that he's throwing for all of his creatures. That's what all this is. This is the party God is throwing for his creatures and you and me, we get to be the head host. All this to say, God is not committed to making us happy, safe, and comfortable. It's not a part of his plan. But God is utterly and unconditionally committed to our everlasting good and is even now bending every last thing, even the terrible and the tragic, bending it all toward the infinite joy of the kingdom of God. And so trusting that, okay, trusting that, we cry out when we need to cry out because sometimes we need to. And we doubt when we need to doubt. And sometimes we need to. And God understands all that. Remember, God knows what it's like to be a human. And then God, God wraps that almighty arm around us. And we understand, right? We understand uh, our entitlement and our insignificance are converted into reverence and gratitude because we understand that we are neither everything nor are we nothing, but honestly, who cares what we are so long as we're God's children? And we are. Let's pray together. Gracious God, it's a big old world that you made and terrible things happen. Every last one of us here, every last one of us watching will have our hearts broken at some point. And when we look at this big world, it's, it's hard to believe that you could know and see and care. And yet you do. And so we pray that you would do for us what you did for our friend Job. That you would help us glimpse this big, bad, beautiful world that you have made. That you would help us to remember that we are not everything, that the universe does not exist to serve us, that you are up to more in the world than making us happy, safe, and comfortable. But that we would embrace that because it doesn't mean we're insignificant. It just means that we are not the only significant thing in the universe, and we rejoice in that. We embrace the role you have given us to be the host for this part of your throne for all creation. We cry out when we need to cry out. We doubt when we need to doubt. We feel your eternal arms around us, reminding us that most importantly, we are your children. And that is enough. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.